Welcome to Reconciled Church Miami, Pastor Aldo Leon. You read the text that we're going to be in. It's uh, Matthew 28, 1-10. After the Sabbath, the last, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake because the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and he rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his robe as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, don't be afraid, because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, he ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, good morning. They came up, took a hold of his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. So I want to just basically do a part two of last week. Was that Last week was the cross, so what? This week is the resurrection, so what? So what, who cares about the resurrection? What does it mean to us? So I think it means a new start, you know, kind of like a New Year's Eve, just like on, in March or April. Some of you may say, I think, I think the resurrection is about just, you know, I, I have a lot of issues, personal issues, so I think God can, like, use the resurrection to fix all my personal issues. Maybe that's how you process it. Or maybe it's like, I think, yeah, I know there's, like, a heaven, I think, and so I think I got to go there. So I got to cash in my, my heaven check, and the resurrection has something to do with that. Um, or some may say, like, oh, you know, the resurrection is not really about what happened to Jesus in history is just about, you know, the resurrection of my own heart. What does the resurrection matter? So I'm going to answer that big question by answering four smaller questions. The first one is, what is is the meaning of the resurrection? Second is, what does the resurrection say to us personally? Third, what does the resurrection say to the church collectively? And fourth, what does the resurrection do to us? So first question. As we kind of get around all this, you know, Easter, resurrection, hoopla, what does it mean? Is what does the resurrection mean to us? I'm going to read verse 1 to answer that. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other went to the tomb. Now, Sabbath is a loaded term that connects us to the first week of creation. So when you hear Sabbath in Matthew, Matthew is making a connection with the first Six days of creation where God worked and then he rested and he entered into his rest. And so when Matthew says Sabbath about the resurrection of Christ in reference to it, he's basically saying that Christ's work is nothing less than the new creation. This is God's new thing that he's now doing through Christ's death and resurrection. And let me give you an illustration that may help. Are you guys familiar with the, uh, of course you are, the smartphone and the upgrades? 
Bro, I don't know what's up with that. I feel like it's some conspiracy to just kill your phone in two years. I don't know, it's like weird, right? Every, I'm starting to, I'm starting to get, have this pattern. Like every two years, my iPhone, my iPhone just dies. Um, so yeah, like you get upgrades of the same phone to make it work better. And, uh, and I, I think that we see the resurrection of Jesus like that as Christians often. It's like, I think... Jesus' resurrection needs to kind of come give me some me upgrades. So he improves my morality. He improves, uh, he improves my abilities. He improves my behavior, my world. It's just kind of like a, an upgrading of me. But, beloved, what we're learning about Jesus' resurrection in light of this text is that Jesus is not working with you and who you are. He's starting entirely over and remaking you in the works of Jesus. So now that you live, you understand your life based upon the perfect life of Jesus for you. You understand your life in light of the death of Christ for your sins and his resurrection and all that means. Jesus is not coming to boost you, elevate you, uh, improve you, add on to you. He is coming to make you something entirely new in himself. So who you are in Christ by adoption, who you are in Christ by his work, by the Holy Spirit, is really what he's doing. This is what true newness is about, beloved. He is remaking you entirely new in the resurrection of Christ by faith. So first thing about what it means is it's about a new creation, not just upgrades and add-ons to you. You know, like, I think, you know the statement, like, uh, you know, six ways to a better you? You know what six ways to a better you is? It's not good. You need an entirely other you and an entirely other someone else who is Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. So first thing is new creation. Second thing, new relation. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake because the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear that they became like dead men. Again, this again is terminology that's connecting us with other events in Scripture. So this angels, lightning, thunder, shaking, feeling like you're going to die, it's the same events that surrounded Mount Sinai and the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic Covenant is just a way that God related to his people in the Old Testament. There's something different going on here because even though, like, the angels are present and there's, there's lightning and thundering and shaking and, and there's this fear of death through God's presence, God then says, do not be afraid, meaning that there's another kind of relationship that's happening here that's not like the Moses arrangement, which was conditional. The way that God related to his people in, you know, through the Moses, Moses way was a conditional way. It's kind of like a... Uh, people that, that when they first get married, they relate to themselves conditionally. And some of y'all are still trying to do that. Like, well, if I do this, and you do this, and I'll do this if you do this. And, 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 then, and then eventually, we realize that it doesn't work. Maybe like you're 80 years old and you finally figure that out. Maybe you're 40. I've already figured that out. The only way to have a good relationship with my wife is for it to not be kind of measured by all these conditions that she can always meet to be with her. We just got to love each other for how we are 
and that's a good relationship. And beloved, God gave a conditional way of relating to him in the Old Testament. You know why? To realize that we can't relate to God that way. You read, have you read, the, you read the whole Bible, like the book of Judges? God gives a law. Man sins. Man sins. They get outcast. They forgive. God forgives them. Gives them the law. They sin. Cast them out. And then by the end of the Old Testament, the whole people of Israel are where? Exiled in Babylon. Why? Because God has been saying that the only way that you can relate to me is if I meet my own conditions by my own son. Jesus Christ, the one who obeys God's law perfectly for us and gives us credit for his obedience. Jesus Christ, who dies for our law-breaking and lawlessness. And now, this Sabbath terminology and, and all this kind of stuff that connects us to the way God relates to his people before is saying now, God, through the resurrection of Christ, is relating to his people unconditionally, one way, not conditionally no more. That, that was just a way to prepare you for God's one-way grace that is all about him meeting his own terms for you and you relating to him because of him. So we're talking about a new creation here with the resurrection. God is doing something totally new. Secondly, God is relating to us in a different way than he did through that whole Moses economy from Moses down to here. He is now relating to us unconditionally because Christ has met the terms and conditions. Third thing about what this means to us is not not just new relation, but new vacation. New vacation. After the Sabbath, the first day of the week of dawning, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to the tomb. Again, this Sabbath connects us to the first week of the Bible. This is what happens the first week of the Bible. God works, and then he rests. And then he enters into his rest after he works. And then he creates Adam. He says, Adam, I want you to work, and then I want you to enter into my rest based upon your ability to work with what I've given you. And what happened? Adam didn't do what he was called to do. And so when Sabbath is set around the resurrection of Christ, what God is saying is that Jesus Christ is the Adam, the last Adam, who has performed and done what, he's, what man is supposed to do, and Jesus Christ has entered into God's rest by virtue of his accomplishments and his achievements. So in the resurrection of Christ, we now can enter into Jesus Christ who has worked perfectly, triumphantly, comprehensively, and he has now earned God's eternal rest. Now we, through the resurrection and faith, can enter into God's rest. And you'd be like, can you give me some more text to validate it? Let me go to, let me go to this place that I think is helpful. It's Hebrews 4. Listen to Hebrews 4. Again, he says in verse 5, they will never enter my rest since it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of their disobedience. Again, he specifies a certain day, speaking through David after a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later by another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest, God's rest, has rested from his own works just as God did from his. Let us make every effort to enter into that rest. So 
the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, Jesus worked good enough for you now to rest in his works and relax in his works. And I think this is an illustration that I think is helpful. I think we oftentimes think of the rest that we have in Christ kind of like this. You know, like you get a new job and they higher pay, more resources, better, better benefits, better, you know, better vacations and stuff. So, you know, you get a new job. And I think we think the resurrection is like that. Like Jesus empowers us to now do really great things for him, which we, we then can trust in and find ultimate rest in. The reason why you guys are so exhausted all the time is because you are finding some, you're, at, you're seeking to have Jesus boost you to do enough things for you to feel good about yourself so you can then rest and say, aha, I can rest now. But I think a more appropriate picture is a picture of the settlement. You know the settlement? You get injured and then you get like multi-million dollars you don't got to work no more. Beloved, Jesus, listen to me, listen to me very carefully. Jesus is not boosting your spirituality and adding to you so you can do enough great things for God for you then to rest by virtue of how great you are for God. Jesus, God is calling you to enter into the rest that Jesus has earned in achieving and dying for you. This is good news because now you realize that there is an actual place for you with peace and tranquility to stop thinking that there's some other thing that you need to do for you then to be able to sit down on the couch of spirituality. Beloved, Jesus in the resurrection has earned your right to enter into God's rest and so it, when we say, the, what does the resurrection mean? It means new creation, new relation, new vacation. I'm sorry, it's just, I wanted to rhyme. It's kind of cheesy, new vacation. So this is what it means. Second thing I say, what does, resu- what does resurrection, resurrection say to us personally? Verse 5 says, he told the woman, don't be afraid because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here for he has been resurrected just as he said Come and see the place where he lay. So what what does the resurrection say to us? First, it says to us, he is the doer. He is the doer. You say, why do you say that? The angel says, Jesus, who is the crucified one. It's, It's not just the one who was crucified, but it's almost like giving Jesus the title of the one who is the crucified one. Who is Jesus? He is the crucified one. This illustration I used in the first service. I said, look, there's some people that do uh, volunteer work, you know, every once in a while. You go down to downtown and you, you feed the homeless and, and, you know, you feel really good about yourself and you take pictures and you post it on Facebook. <laughs> Stop it, you know. Um, and then there's some of you, that, that, that's, that's your job. Your job is to work in a nonprofit where you care for people socially in need. And here's, here's the issue. I think we see Jesus kind of as somebody who volunteered to do a saving work. And then his occupation and vocation is to be some sort of like great example, great teacher, great advisor, you know, hey, you can do it kind of person. But what Matthew is saying is that Jesus' occupation all the time, 24-7, is somebody who is your rescuer who was crucified for you. That's his job. That's his title. That's who he is. So what does that look like? It looks like this. We are inconsistent we're dishonest, 
We exaggerate. We're immoral. We're selfish. We're prideful. We are idolatrous. We have our own ideas of God. I, th- I think this is what God's like. I think I'm going to worship what I think he's like. We're idolatrous. We're, we're, we're murderous. We're hateful. We're, we're bitter. We're, just, we're, we're complaining. Isn't this us in some ways? Come on. But beloved, Jesus is the one who was crucified once and for all for those things. And because he in heaven is not the advising one, not the coaching one, not the helping one, not the, you know, probation officer one, but he in heaven is the one who was crucified for everything bad about me. I now can live a Christian life underneath that banner. If he's somebody else, if he's not the crucified one who was resurrected, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. But he is the crucified one. He's a doer. Second, we are the lookers. We are the lookers. It says in verse 6, come and see the place where he lay. So the resurrection has happened, and the people are called to what? Come and see. Come and look. There's two calls in this theater. One call is the call to audition for the play. You know you guys can be in plays here? I don't know, some of y'all actors or whatnot. Um, that's, that, that's one kind of call. The second call is the call to come and watch a play. Beloved, which is the call here in this text? Call to sit your seat and watch the drama of Christ. Look at him. Look at him loving people. Look at him obeying God's law. Look at him enduring temptation. Look at him achieving. Look at him tempted by Satan and triumphant. Look at him on the cross crucified for every single wretched thing that you ever thought, said, or done. Look at him resurrected. Look at him. Not, hey, the resurrection is this great audition for you to come here with all of your supposed abilities and try out to get a place in the play, beloved. No, no, no. He's saying to you, listen, listen. You need to see the resurrection of Christ as a drama to see, as something to look at primarily, and everything else flows from that. You know, uh, it's kind of like this. You, you, know, you know how kids are with kids? You know how kids are with kids? You know how kids are with movies? How are kids in movies? They watch the same stinking movie all the time. What are we going to do today? I'm going to watch Incredibles. What are you going to do tomorrow? I'm going to watch The Incredibles. It's like, this is who we are. We are people. What, what are we going to watch? What, what, what are we going to watch this week? What are we going to watch next week? What are we going to watch? We are going to perpetually and continuously tune the channel of our hearts to what? The drama and the story of a triumphant Christ who lived wonderfully for us, died magnificently for us, raised triumphant over sin, death, and hell, and the devil, and now sits in heaven. This is a story that we put on repeat as Christians, as watchers and lookers. Beloved, the selfie generation culture does not fit with Christianity. You know what the selfie generation? We're in a basketball game and we're like, look at me in the basketball game. We're in the Grand Canyon. It's like, look at me in the Grand Canyon. Beloved, that's not Christianity. Christianity is not 
us always being preoccupied with our, you know, wonderful look somewhere, but it's us being amazed and impressed and receiving and looking at somebody else and saying, I'm just here to look. Not, I'm here to pose in all these amazing things. Hey, look, if you take pictures of the Grand Canyon, don't feel bad. It's an illustration of Christianity, right? I'm just saying, the point is not, hey, look, I'm here. The point is what's there anyway. So, all right. So, you have to look at Third point, what does the resurrection say to us? We are the secure. Verse 5 says, do not be afraid. And there's a way in, uh, in, in, in Greek languages to, to say things, and New Testament's written in Greek, and it's not just saying, don't be afraid. It's saying, you have no reason to be afraid from now on. You understand? Like, I can tell you, like, hey, don't be afraid. Like, you're not going to get hit by the car. That's just a momentary thing. But what Jesus is saying is fear before God's presence is now done with because of this resurrection. You follow me? Um, and and here's, here's what I think oftentimes happens is we think, we, we, we don't say this, but we act like this. We act like, look, it's all, it's all fine and well that Jesus was raised in the dead. And he died for our sins. But I think we should spend the rest of our lives scared if we're good enough to be saved. Is that fair to say that that's oftentimes the attitude of the Christian? It's like, yeah, yeah, he died, was resurrected, but now let's spend the rest of our Christian life very anxious that we have proven ourselves to be good enough for Jesus. But beloved, what, is, what, is, what does the resurrection say? No reason to be afraid anymore in God's presence because Jesus was raised from the dead and has sits now triumphant over your sin and failures and because he has been raised triumphant over sin, death, and hell, and the devil. Because of that, there is no cause to now be afraid before God because everything that should have happened happened through me in Christ for me. Don't be afraid anymore. As opposed to, let's spend the rest of our Christian life scared if we're Christian enough to be Christians. Let me tell you, very simple. You're not Christian enough to be Christian. There's only one way to be Christian enough to be Christian. That is if you can keep God's law a thousand percent all the time. You read the law of God in Scripture. It says, cursed is everybody who does not abide by everything written in the book of law to perform them. Unless you can always get it right, you're not right. So the only way we can have security and safety before God is if somebody is great enough and stupendous enough to live how we should have lived and to die for our badness. This is all that we have as Christians. That's why the resurrection says to us that we are secure, beloved. You are secure because Jesus was raised. Not because you're raising your spirituality more every day. By all means, do it. By all means, pursue godliness, holiness, pursue righteousness, but understand that you're safe because Jesus was raised from the dead. But, 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 but nothing. I believe that. I stand on that. So we are the secure. Third question, what does the resurrection say to the church? What does the resurrection say to the church? Verse 7, 
Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, good morning. They came up, took a hold of his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. So what is the, resur- 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 what is the resurrection of the church? First, the gospel is the fire in the church. Three times in this narrative, the agitation and preoccupation is what? The good news. Okay? You know, Pilate just had Jesus crucified, and, you know, and, and the Jews just betrayed him, and, 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 and all, of his, all of Jesus' friends just abandoned him. And all this stuff is going on, and three times in a very short period, Jesus', Jesus angel, different people say, good news. The fire, the fire in situations is very important. You, you guys know how the fires are in the house, right? So maybe your house, the fire is the kids, right? Whenever the kids peeps and needs something, you're like, oh, 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 what, what do you need? Oh, oh, you know, like that's the fire in your house. For some of you, the fire is just your stuff. Like don't mess with the stuff. Don't, 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 don't disorganize it. Don't break it. Like, you know, some of you grew up in houses where that was a fire. Beloved, what is the fire of the church? Yeah, Kato, gospel. <laughs> Let me tell you what the fire is not. The fire is not our view of baptism. The fire is not end times. Like, what is your view of the return of Christ? Is it pre-trip, post-trip, past-trip? No, that's not the fire. The fire is not even, who did you vote for? Did you vote for Trump or Hillary? That ain't the fire. You know, everyone wants to cook themselves over that stuff. The fire is not even how moral we are, though that's important. That's not the fire. The fire is not programs, how many people are here, what is your budget, that's not the fire in the church of Christ. Fire is not, hey, do you guys, are you guys contemporary? Do you have contemporary music? Are you classical? Like, blah, blah. The fire in the church of Jesus Christ is that Christ lived the life that we should live as our rep, and he died the death that we should die for all of our sins, and he was raised over death and sin and hell triumphant, and now he is the hope of the church. This is the fire in the church. We should be known for worshiping a dead guy who was resurrected first. Everything else is secondary. And you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward. We're going we're to do the book of Acts after the summer. Um, don't, don't cheer because it's going to take us at least a year to get through Acts. And you, by the time like six months goes, I'm done with Acts. Um, this is what they were known for. The church was known for, they say some guy who was crucified by the Romans and was resurrected is the Lord of glory. This is what they were known for, beloved. The, the fire in the church is the gospel. It's the heartbeat of the church. It's the pulse of the church. Second thing about what does the resurrection say to the church is declaration before reformation. Declaration before reformation. Let me ask you a question. Jesus told the good news to who? who what are these guys doing right now? What are they doing right now? What are the disciples doing right now? They sold out Jesus. 
Like he's going to the cross, holler at your boy. I'm done with that. No, 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 I'm not. I, I was with you, like, you know, kind of being like the popular guy who was going to like take over the crucified guy. No, they all sold out Jesus Christ. And they're now in the midst of what? They're sellout. What does Jesus want them to hear first? Tell them the good news that these cowardly, pathetic guys have been redeemed by my work. Go tell them that. They're like, you know what? They better prove that they're sorry for their stupidity, and then I'll tell them the good news. That's how we are, right? Like, you know, you ladies, when, you, when your husband makes you mad, I want to I see him suffer and feel like I got to see this proof to, you know, reconcile. You know, Jesus is not like that, though. In the middle of their cowardness and selling Jesus out, he says, tell them the good news that I am enough for them. Before they do anything good. Beloved, I am so shocked that in the church we have this subtle attitude that we can't hear the good news until we got some pre-existing goodness. So you can't look at, I'm going to give you a practical example to kind of get what I'm saying. You, know, you look at someone who is in the particular sin of homosexuality. And you, and you look at that person and, and your attitude is, hey, man, if you can stop being gay, then maybe I'll tell you the good news about how Christ rescues all kinds of sinners, including you. But, beloved, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not good news for those who have reformed themselves even a little bit. The gospel is good news for people outside of any single changes that they make before. And once we hear the good news that our sins have been canceled out and our, our life that we should have been lived is now perfect because Jesus was perfect, we then change and reform from that. But we hear the announcement first of forgiveness, pardon, saving, rightness, and then reformation occurs. But not reformation before the declaration of forgiveness. No, beloved, that's not what we learned from this narrative. I, I give the illustration earlier. Um, my daughter has this very interesting way of uh, functioning. She has to hear the declaration of something before she does something. So we say, hey, Abiella, please finish your dinner. Tell me that I'm going to get dessert. If you declare to me that I'm going to get dessert, then I will eat my dinner. Now, she shouldn't be doing that, but beloved, that's the picture of the gospel. God's going to tell us that we're right with him, that we're saved, that we're justified, that we're secure, that we're beloved, that we're kept before anything in us makes us worthy and valuable. Why? Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he was crucified for us. Declaration before reformation is what is said to the church. You know, you know, you know another, another picture that's interesting? Remember the, the woman caught in adultery? He tells her that she's forgiven of her sins, and then she says, go and sin no more. 
not go and sin no more, then I'll tell you you're forgiven. But he pronounces her absolved from her adultery. And then after she hears the testimony that she's absolved, that she's okay, he says, now go and sin no more. Very different. Very different than oftentimes we see. So the third thing, what does the resurrection say to the church? Is, uh, I feel like I got my second win, by the way. Got my second win. Anyways, squirrel. All right. God uses broken tools. God uses broken tools. So Jesus says, hey, I, I want to uh, go, I want to meet you at Galilee. What is, what is the significance of Galilee, guys? Come on, this is a small meeting. You guys can talk to me. What is the significance of Galilee? That's where, that's where Jesus commissions the disciples. The Great Commission is over in that area. <laughs> so <laughs> check this out. These dudes have failed, and they're in the middle of their failure, and Jesus says, hey, guess what? I want you to meet me at the place where I'm going to commission you to do my work. What? Hey, hey, Jesus, uh, these guys just sold you out. Um, they're still selling you out. And, and you're telling them that you want to meet them at the place of their commissioning to do your work? What are you doing, Jesus? Let me give you an illustration that may help. Santiago, he's not here. He's a chef. Um, he, he can take any knife, and he can cut anything really well. Dull knife, sharp knife. I can have, I can only cut things well if I have the sharpest knife. Why? Because the tool is more about the one using the tool than the goodness of the tool. Make sense? So you got a good person using a, a good or bad tool, it'll work out. You got a bad person using a bad tool, it's not going to work out. Why? Beloved, why is it, why is it that Jesus Christ picks the most pitiful tools? Did you, do you guys know who these people were? Hey, I think it would be a good idea to take the uneducated, untrained, temperamental, violent guys uh, who, you know, like, let me go to the docks of, of, of Miami and pick guys to be my, like, staples of the kingdom. Guys who don't get it. The whole ministry of Jesus is they don't get it. And then at the end of Jesus' ministry, they sold him out. And why? Why? Because, beloved, listen, God is in the business of using less than likely things to magnify the power of the one using less than likely things. He is pleased to take us in our brokenness and our failures and our fragility and our limitations and say, listen, I'm going to show the world that I am awesome and I am glorious as I take broken tools and I do radically magic stuff with them. That's the whole point, beloved. And we're so busy as Christians trying to make ourselves better tools when it defies the point. The point is God does not need you. He needs himself. So if you trust him in your limitations, he can really knock down walls, not because of you, but because of him. You guys, should, I, should I do the Cuban mop thing again? 
It's the same sermon twice. You guys remember the Cuban mop? It's just it's this freaking piece of wood. The wood with a freaking rag. I'm like, get a Swiffer. Get a Swiffer with the changeable pads. You know what I'm saying? Like, what is that? What are you doing with a piece of wood and a, a trapo? But somehow, this lady with this stick makes the house look like the bomb. I mean, it's a sparkling clean. Beloved, this is our Lord. He takes busted sticks and all of our rags and our just unimpressiveness, and he works wonders for his own sake. So the resurrection says to us that God uses broken tools. Last question and answer is what does the resurrection do to us? What does it do to us? Verse 8 Let me uh, hydrate. So departing quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, good morning. They came up and took his hold of his feet and worshiped him, and he told them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to meet me at Galilee. So what does the resurrection do to us? First, I have two points. It makes us newscasters above all. It makes us newscasters above all. So these people hear the good news, and what do they do? Share it. Um, This is, I think, somewhat relevant because we have a lot of terminology in the church now. We've got to live the gospel. We've got to be the gospel. Listen, we're not the gospel. We're not the good news. Jesus living the life that sinners should live, dying the death that sinners should die, being raised triumphant, and going back to heaven is the good news. And we can live in the light of the gospel. We can live because of the gospel. We can't be the gospel. We can only newscast the gospel. Um, you remember during Hurricane Irma um, how, like, all y'all was just looking at these newscasters, like, the whole time with just such intent saying the same stinking thing over and over. Well, Hurricane Irma's really big. It's bigger than Andrew. Are you going to say it again? I think I forgot five minutes ago. It's going to hit Miami. Oh, whatever. But, but you weren't listening to these people because of how they looked, right? You weren't listening to these people because of their resumes and credentials, Right? You weren't listening to these people because they were eloquent. You, it doesn't matter if the guy was saying, well, Hurricane Andrew's going to, or if it was the person saying, well, it didn't matter. You were listening to them. Why? Because they were telling you very significant, life-shattering, changing events. So let's bring it to us. We don't live very impressive lives, do we? Listen, we don't live impressive neighborhoods, we don't have impressive houses. We don't have impressive kids. We don't have impressive lifestyles. We're just not impressive. Right? Can I be fair to say that? What is it that makes us utterly meaningful, purposeful, and defined? 
It is not how impressive we are and what we have and what we can show and how we can cast ourselves really well. We are significant because we have these wonderful news about a Savior who lived the life that I could never live perfectly a thousand percent as God and as man. And he, he on the cross in a matter of hours, he died and took every single ounce of God's, of God's justice on the cross and he canceled it out and he finished it and he turned the wrath away and then he was buried and was raised triumphant where now the new creation, the new heavens, the new reality is now all in Christ. We have great news. And because we have great news about a great Christ, we have purpose, meaning, and definition. But you know what depression is often about? I don't want to reduce all depression to be the same. But you know what depression is really about? You want to cast yourself. You're like, Jesus, can you by your Holy Spirit give me a great story so I can cast it to the world? Which is why every Christian testimony is, look at how impressive I am now. But beloved, and that makes us depressed. Because you know what? At, at the end of the day, when there's no one around and we're in our own heads, we know we're not impressive. We, that's what we got to tell everybody all the time. That's what we got to tweet it. That's what we got to get the, the nicest poses. Why? Because deep down we know we're whatever. But beloved, we don't have a reason to be depressed because we can't cast this great story for everyone and our families. Man, I live defined by casting the glory of Christ for me. You know, the illustration I gave earlier is like, <laughs> they're like, uh, uh, can I, can I, can I, should, I do the, should I do it again, Kato? Yes or no? You think that was helpful or not? All right, you're, you're determining my sermon now. So, like, at one time, one time we were hanging out at, at Kata's house, and, like, there was, like, uh, there were some people there, and she was, like, you know, she's excited. Hey, this is my pastor. And the lady was, like, uh, she, she totally, like, she totally, like, she totally, like, overlooked it. Like, I don't even want to talk about that as your pastor. Like, doesn't look very impressive. He looks kind of young. He's got tattoos. Like, he's not a very, like, smoothed-out person. What, what does he matter? Beloved, you know why people like me can do things like this? Because I have a great story about a great somebody else, not because I'm great. We need to get over ourselves and get overwhelmed with how great Jesus is and the story he's given us. So last point, what does the resurrection do to us? It makes us workers in the family business. Workers in the family business. Look, it says, go and tell who? My who? My brothers. My brothers. It's, this is different, beloved. You know, you know how, when you have an employee and you have a boss-employee relationship, like, you guys don't really love each other typically. You're not very close. You're not very transparent. You know, if you don't, if you don't work well very often, you'll get fired. But Jesus is recruiting his church, his people, to do his work with him as brothers. This means that we, what we do in this church, beloved, is in a family business where our, our dad loves us, he delights in us, he celebrates us, he champions us, he treasures us, he loves us. 
This is not just a work arrangement. This is a family where you have now been recruited to the family business with Jesus as your big brother and God as your father. This is the most profound thing in the universe is that he makes us newscasters above all and secondly, he makes us workers in the family business, not just the business. So let me go back and rehearse all my points and give some application. So new creation, new creation, new relation, new vacation. What does that spell for us? Beloved, we should be people that are doing things entirely different now in Jesus Christ. So what, what, what do I mean by that? You know, you know what we do? We want to parent the same way we parented before Christ. You want to deal with your problems and your issues the same way you dealt with them before Christ. You want to deal with your marriage in the same way you dealt with before Christ. The same drama, the same petty stuff, all about threatening and all this stuff. We, 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 we want to do, do everything. Like, Jesus, can you help me? continue to do things the way I did them in myself? And can you kind of like, can I pray to you? And like, listen, if the gospel, if the resurrection is about God making us a new creation, then everything that we do has to be done entirely different in light of who we now are because of Christ's works. You should never do things the same way you did them outside of Christ. Now it's like your whole brain needs to be rewired with all this gospel kind of, you know, wiring so that now you do everything in marriage and conflict management and working and kids and parenting and dealing with all. You do everything now in light of the fact you've been recreated new in somebody else's works. As opposed to just continuing to do things in the same way with Jesus' help. Very practically, it's, you know, it's like outside of Jesus, what's the, what's, what's the goal of, of marriage? I want this person to give me what I want. Inside Jesus, what's the goal of marriage? I want this person's failures and sins and issues to lead me to how necessary Jesus Christ is and how awesome Christ is for imperfect people. So the purposes change in light of God bringing about a new reality and new creation in Christ. And I say another, another practical application in light of Christ being our new vacation is we need to stop doing so much. Guys, Miami, you guys are nauseating yourselves with, you always have to do something. You always have to be somewhere. You always have to accomplish something. You, it's like, it's never ends, and it's like for nothing. In Jesus Christ now, beloved, you have entered once and for all into God's eternal rest that Christ has earned. You can slow down. You can say no. You can live more simply. Why? Because you don't need to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing to rest. You have entered into God's rest in Christ now. So pump your brakes. Pump your brakes. If he is a doer, we are the lookers and secure. We should be people that make the Christian life more about Christ and less about us. Beloved, the Christian life should be way more about Christ and a lot less about us because at the end of the day, Christ is the most important figure in the Christian life. Isn't, isn't it a strange thing to say? I, I, I grew up, uh, I didn't grow up in churches, but you know, when I got saved, I went to all these churches where it was almost like the purpose of the Christian life 
was really all about me. What I would do, what I would accomplish, what I would create, what I would have. And then like I started reading the Bible and I was like, man, it seems like the focus of the Bible is all about Jesus and what he did. So maybe my Christian life should be oriented around that guy and not him be oriented around me. We should be people that take ourselves a lot less seriously and take Jesus way more seriously. If the gospel is a fire, declaration before reformation, and God uses broken tools, beloved, it means that we should be people that recover fast and regularly when we fail and sin. You know what happens oftentimes with Christians? We fail and we sin, and we get so spiraled down in the failure that it takes us forever to recover. I mean, it's like people, like, they disappear from church for months. It's like, what happened? Like, I screwed up. But but listen, if God is in the business of using broken, shabby, wrecked tools by his powerful grace, then we should be people who recover very quickly as often as we fail and sin very quickly, right? Right. We should be less concerned with not breaking. As a Christian, I just want to not break. We should be less concerned with not breaking and more concerned with how God is awesome and majestic and mighty and powerful to use my brokenness to leverage it for his glory by his name. Supposedly, everyone's trying to make themselves unbreakable. But Jesus is like, look, I, I, I want to smash you to bits to magnify my ability to use you in your failures. Two more points of application. Newscasts, above all, means that, beloved, we should be evangelizing. I mean, it sounds like an obvious thing, but let me, let me even illustrate some help. Um, if you turn the news on and <laughs> the newscast didn't say anything, what would happen? This is the whole live the gospel thing, right? So imagine like someone's shot, someone was shot over there in Hialeah, and you turn on the news, and they're just there. You're not going to understand what happened, beloved. Look, the gospel is, look, we should live winsome, godly lives, and we should love people practically, but the gospel is not going to ooze through you like osmosis. People may think your life is better because of yoga. They may think your life is better because of you. Beloved, every person in this church should be regularly telling people about Jesus' works. If you're not doing that, you're not doing what you were wired to do as a, as a Christian. If you're going to do anything as a Christian, do that. You say, well, I'm not an evangelist. You don't need to be an evangelist. You need to be a Christian who's saved and knows that Jesus is enough for you. We should be telling people the good news. The church is not a place where you bring people here so the evangelists can evangelize them. The church is a place where everyone has a mouthpiece for the gospel and everyone speaks the gospel where they are. Correct? So that's another point of that. Last point of application is if we, are, if we are workers in the family business, it means that we need to be people who are delighted in by God and very confident in what we do. Listen, what do you think? What do you, what do you think? So this, this, is, this, this, this is what I do because I, I'm not God and I'm a sinner. So when somebody does something, my, my typical response is to be like, you know, like, actually, you forgot to do that. 
You know, that wasn't very impressive. Um, actually, you're very inconsistent. And so I always find something to, like, be critical about when something does something for Jesus. Does that make sense? How do you think God sees a Christian doing the most basic things for his namesake um, because they're in the family business? How do you think? Dude, God is utterly and comprehensively excited, clapping, cheering, rejoicing, celebrating the most meager things you do in his family business. We should be confident people. We should be loved people. We should be risky people because we realize that because God has called us to a family business, he is clapping. And re- just like my kids. My kids do just, like my son, like, you know, he, he does like these unimpressive things and I'm just like so excited. Why? Because he's my child. So I say that because I think in the church there is this kind of like attitude that we all should feel like crap about our Christianity because it's not very impressive. I'm not as smart as that guy. I'm not as gifted as that guy. I'm not as godly as that. That's not the point. The point is that God has recruited you to a family business where everything about his kids is delightful to him. So the resurrection, so what? This is the resurrection, so what? It's a big so what, correct? It's a massive so what. The so what is for us to trust again as Christians what it means for Christ to be raised and for us who don't know the Lord to trust for the first time. So let me pray and move us to the table. Heavenly Father, thank you that in your death and resurrection, the amen, the triumph, the championing, the victory is entirely sealed and finished. And now we can live from your victory. We can live from forgiveness. We can live from your position and standing and not work towards it. So, Father, I pray, God, that you would just just empower us and encourage us and invigorate us from this good news of your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. That concludes our message, and we hope that you were inspired by it. If you'd like to hear more about the gospel or find out more about Reconciled Church Miami, please connect with us using one of the ways listed on our website, reconcilechurchmiami.org.